Welcome, everybody. Good to, good to really a joy to be with you and uh, to see the firsthand the work that Brad is doing, which is a great work. I'm honored to invest a little time with you today and to share really from one of my favorite texts in all the Bible, which is the story in John 2, where Jesus turns water into wine in keeping with our theme of the day, which is joy. And uh, in the Bible, you may or may not know this, but in the Bible, joy and wine are profoundly connected. And so uh, there's a reason for that, but we won't get into that today because that's not really the point of the text. But just assuming that joy and wine are connected, we're going to look at a moment in Scripture uh, where really joy had run out. It was empty. And then God does a work of transformation. So please join me in prayer, and then we'll look at this text together. Father, thanks that we can gather here on this day it is a, indeed a warm day, and we're mindful uh, this summer that though we're coming out of a very difficult year, this is not an easy summer for many, many people across our country. At kind of the macro level, we're facing enormous issues as a culture. And then, of course, at the micro level, each one of us is facing issues uh, ranging from small children and challenges with parenting, to aging parents as we care for those who have gone before us, to our own vocations, to loneliness, to anxiety. And we pray, Father, that whatever it is that we're facing today, that we would just, in a way, uh, bring that to you so that you might fill the emptiness with your joy. Show us that path today. We'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And as you know, we're looking at a, a series right now on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And uh, if you grew up in the church, then you memorize the fruit of the Spirit, and you know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is the second named fruit of the Spirit. And I want to think with you for just a moment about the irony in my own life that uh, some of my kind of faith heroes who've gone before me who demonstrated joy are martyrs. And I think of two in particular, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany was a pastor who's Life was taken for standing up against the Reich. And also, a woman in Germany named uh, Sophie Scholl. I came across her uh, because there was a movie about her, true story. This woman who uh, went to the University of Munich and in 1943, I believe it was, began with her family to write uh, pamphlets advocating to the German people that they resist the, the Nazi Reich. And so she wrote these pamphlets, and then they were distributed all throughout Germany. She'd go on a train and then mail them in different cities. And uh, one day at the University of Munich, uh, she and her brother were caught. And then within three days after their arrest, publicly tried and publicly beheaded. She was executed at the age of 23. Her story so profoundly, uh, so profoundly affected me that uh, years ago, I went and visited her grave. She was part of a ministry called the White Rose Fellowship in Germany. And uh, so her grave, to this day, always has a white rose on it. German people just randomly make sure that there's never a day that goes by when there's not a white rose on her grave. And so as I was there visiting her grave and thinking about her courage as a 23-year-old. Uh, as I was leaving the gravesite, 
uh, you walk about 100 yards, and there's a flower stand. And she had a white rose, several actually, a bouquet on her grave, but they were wilting. And as I was leaving, I saw a man purchasing a new bouquet of white roses, and I, I just knew he's going to take those and put those on her grave. It's very powerful. Uh, God used her to change the world. But listen to what, she, though she was executed for her faith, listen to what she writes in her journal just before she goes. Isn't it a riddle? and awe-inspiring that everything is so beautiful. Despite all the horrors in our culture, lately I've noticed something grand and mysterious peering through my sheer joy in all that is beautiful. I see every day a sense of the Creator. Only man can truly be ugly because he has the free will to cut himself off from this song of praise and become blind, listen, blind to the beauty and joy that is always around us, even in these dark days. Now, I want to capture that phrase this morning. The beauty and joy that is all around us, even in these dark days. And then this is what she says. Just before she's going to be executed, in her, in her diary, she goes, such a beautiful day and sad too because now I must go. And that's the last entry in her diary. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Such a beautiful day and sad too, now I must go. And she's gone. And yet, she embodied joy. So we want to look at that this morning by looking at John chapter 2, asking the question, how do we become people of joy in the midst of circumstances that are supremely challenging? And as you may or may not know, the Gospel of John is really written for everyone, the religious and the secular, the cynic and the mystic. In, in John's day, it was written for both Jews and Gentiles. And uh, the thing that we want to see in this particular story in John 2, the changing of the water into wine, is that when Jesus performed miracles in the Gospel of John, every miracle is called a sign miracle. There's six different words in Greek language for miracle, which is kind of interesting. But the word used here in John 2 is this word for sign miracle, so that when you see miracles in the Gospel of John, every miracle isn't just intended to fix something. It's intended to teach something about the character of Jesus. So in other words, for example... Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he teaches. I am what? The bread of life. Jesus heals the man who's born blind, and then what? I am the light of the world. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. So every miracle is this articulation of something about Jesus' character, and then when we appropriate that character so that the life of Christ within us becomes real in our own lives, then we begin to embody those same things. We become bread. In other words, we are able, because Christ lives in us, to feed others. We become light. We become life. And in John 2, we become joy. So that's what we're going to look at here. And the story of the, the turning of the water to wine is articulated in four acts, basically. So we'll look at these very briefly. But for act number one, the problem. There's no wine. Act number two the perspectives of Jesus and Mary, the conflict. Act number three, the participation. And act number four, the transformation. So the problem, the perspective, the participation, and then uh, finally the transformation. We look at those, th uh, those things together. So let's begin by looking at the problem. So we're in Acts chapter 2, excuse me, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and here's what we read. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, uh, with Jesus and his disciples, they were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. Implying, hey, it's a big problem. 
uh, Jesus fix it, right? So let's just see, first of all, why wine is so powerfully symbolic in Israel and how that kind of then bleeds into the wedding ceremony. Um, in a wedding ceremony in Israel, uh, it was a bigger deal than in our culture. And many of you who's kind of traveled overseas and gone to a wedding in a different country, if you've done that before, then you know there are places where weddings, like the, the, the party afterwards, last for hours, right? Um, I, I'm not much of a party person, and so often when I perform a wedding ceremony, I'll do the wedding ceremony, I'll go to the, the uh, reception, I'll kiss the bride, I'll hug the groom, I'll say, you were beautiful, I'll greet the family, and then I'll leave, right? And I'm out of there within 30 minutes often, right? But uh, in this case, uh, the wedding reception didn't last a day even. It lasted a week. Because what would happen is that you have a ceremony, and then right after the ceremony, there's a parade through town back to the house of the new bride and groom. And then it's open house for a week where anyone can come and enjoy a glass of wine and uh, a meal with the new couple. So for a whole week, that's, that's not really their honeymoon exactly, but it's still the reception. For a week, it's a, it's a reception that's going on. And so it's always been in that case that the groom who is responsible for paying for the wedding uh, has to provide wine for every guest. So guests come, they're coming for a whole week and you have to provide wine. And what has happened is Jesus shows up and they're out of wine. And so then Mary goes to Jesus and says, this is my paraphrase, hey, Jesus, this is a disaster because it's a disaster due to the fact that wine in Israel is like this omen that has to do with joy. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, and you don't have to go there now, you realize that uh, God says to the nation of Israel, hey, Israel, you're a vineyard. And I planted the vineyard, and then he asks this rhetorical question, Isaiah does, uh, pertaining to the nation of Israel. He says, think about this with me. There's a garden right out here, isn't there? I feel like there is. He says, so what would happen if you tilled the soil and you pulled out all the weeds and you fortified the soil with nutrients and then you planted the seeds and then you watered it daily and carefully and then after a while, uh, the, the seeds begin to germinate and then you realize, oh, uh, these seeds have germinated but they will never produce fruit. It's a rhetorical question Isaiah is asking. He's saying, listen, if there's no fruit, what do you do with the, with the vine that you've planted? And, of course, the answer is what? You rip it out and start over. And then God says to Israel, that's what's going on right now, right? You are God's chosen people. You're the nation. You're participating in all the religious rituals, but there's no fruit. And so the day will come when God's going to do things in a different way because unless there's fruit, you are not fulfilling the purpose for which you're created, and that's not just Israel, that's you and me. Remember John 15? Abide in me, this is a promise. Abide in me and you will what? You will bear fruit. Why? You're made to bear fruit. You're made to show the world what God looks like by embodying nothing less than the joy and hope and generosity and mercy of Jesus. So Isaiah 5 is this reminder that wine is tied to fruitfulness. And then in the, in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel says this, 
uh, hey, a terrible thing has just happened. And what was it? Five swarms of locusts, right? The gnawing locust, the creeping locust, the biting locust. And, and, and they come in, and what does it say? It says, they stripped every vine in Israel. And when every vine is stripped, what happens? It, this is the thing. Joel says, everyone is mourning. And then he kind of unpacks that. Of course, the farmer mourns. Why? No, uh, no income. I've lost my source of income. I mean, I'm a, I'm a vintner, and now I don't have any, any grapes. And uh, the, the, the bridegroom mourns. Why? Because... Uh, no, no wine for the wedding. And then it's, he even says, I love this, the drunk mourns. Why? Well, it's obvious, right? No wine, no drunk. So, so everybody's mourning. And, and Joel says, this is, this is the problem when you're not living in alignment with God's purpose. There's no joy. And that's exactly the symbolism of wine. So that when the wine runs out, you still, look, you still have a life. Just like this couple is still married, but the joy is missing. This is a reality for many Christ followers. Uh, we know Jesus. We love Jesus. We went to Malibu. We accepted Christ. We love young life. We serve we give, we pray, we sing. We even come when it's, you know, 80 degrees in the building. We still are showing up. And yet, behind the veil, I wonder if it's true for any of us, right now, no joy. That's the situation in this moment. And so, if that's our situation today, keep listening. God has a really good word for us, okay? So, no joy. That was, that was the problem. The perspective is this, verse 3, Mary says, hey, they're out of wine, and the implication of the way she says it is, uh, Jesus, I want you to fix this. So from the perspective of Mary, the goal is simply to avoid the embarrassment of letting others know that the wine has run out. Now, I, I don't want to gender stereotype too much here in the room, but I will say, at least in my marriage, my wife is far more compassionate than I am, right? So she, like, she just wants everybody to be happy. Can anybody identify with that? Like, we don't care how the problem is solved. We just want to avoid kind of any embarrassing situation. And that kind of compassion is commendable and needed and appropriate. And yet Jesus says, verse 4, woman, what do I have to do with you? Now, that sounds really harsh, but the phrase woman here is actually in the culture a term of endearment. So don't, don't stumble over that. Woman, what do I have to do with you? But what he's saying here, what Jesus is saying is this, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus uses this phrase, my hour, several times in the Scripture, John 7, 30, John 8, 20, John 12, 23, and when Jesus is talking about his hour, he's talking about the cross. And, and what Jesus is saying here in this particular situation is, oh, hey, uh, here's Mary. They're out of wine. Jesus fix it. And Jesus says, I don't just fix things. Because I'm not just interested in ever just fixing your situation. 
I'm interested in your transformation. So hear this because this is very important as it applies to the principle of joy, right? Many of us think that joy will become a byproduct if we fix our situation. I need a different job. I need a spouse. I need to live in a different city. I, I, need, I need to reconcile something with my family. I, I need my child to be healed. I need to go back to that time before the disaster happened. I, I, I wish once again it was... Uh, February 2020, and we contained the virus. I wish once again it was uh, September 10th, 2001, and, and the walls never fell down. I wish once again uh, it, was, it was 30 seconds on George Floyd's neck. Whatever it is that you wish, you wish it, we could just go back so that all this mess would go away. Because then, this is our thinking, then we'd have joy. Here's Jesus. No, you wouldn't. Because joy is not a, actually joy is not a matter of fixing circumstances. Happiness is, but joy isn't. Joy is something else, as we'll see in this next section. So Jesus says this, my hour is not yet come. I'm here to do something more than just fix circumstances. I'm here for the uh, uh, reality of transformation. And the only way that transformation ever happens is, is if we participate with God in God's unfolding redemption, uh, redemptive plan. So we come to God sometimes, many of us do, we come to God as really honestly as kind of victims. And we go, man, God, uh, please change my wife. She's not behaving properly. Please change my children. They're not behaving properly. Please fix my body. It's sick, right? And we're like, if we, God, if you just intervene here, swoop in, fix it, all will be well. And then here's Jesus well, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm, I'm actually interested not in fixing your situation. I'm interested in fixing your heart so that, you're, so that there's transformation. And transformation requires, Act 3, your participation. So transformation requires your participation. And so let's look at this. Here's uh, verses 5 through 8. It's very interesting. Mary goes, fix it. Jesus goes, my hour is not yet come. And then Mary, in some bizarre confidence that Jesus is still going to do something, says to the servants, hey, whatever Jesus says to you, do it, because there's something good is going to happen here, right? So now watch this, verses 5 through 8. It says here, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each, and Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then Jesus said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Let's just unpack this for just a moment here. I want you to see it's so important. If you're wondering, I, like I'd like to see the fruit of joy in my life displayed. If you write nothing else down or remember nothing else, understand this this morning. Joy is a byproduct of your next step of obedience. Joy is a byproduct of your next step of obedience. If you don't remember anything else, please remember that because God always has for every one of us, I say this all the time, God has a next step, right? Uh, Romans 1 and Romans 16 are, are places that articulate quite clearly for us this principle. It's articulated all throughout the Bible, but here's the thing. We live in a, in a rhythm or we're invited to live in a rhythm of revelation and response. Can you just say that with me? Revelation and response. 
And so I had to do two things then. Number one, I had to open myself up to God's revelation, right? God's revelation, which comes through text, through creation, through the situation in which I find myself that leads me to prayer, uh, and through fellowship with other people. So am I, the, the, the first question on the table is this. Am I open to revelation? Because I can't respond to revelation unless I first receive revelation, right? So I need to be open to this revelation. And if you go back and you look through the Old Testament, you see over and over again God exposing to Israel this fact that though they're doing this and this and this and this correctly, they're stuck because of this over here. Does that make sense? If you look at the book of Amos, here's Amos chapter 5. Are you fasting? Check. Are you singing? Check. Are you gathering? Check. Are you doing your Bible study? Check. And yet, says Amos 5, not interested in your fasting, not interested in your singing, not interested in your gathering, not interested in your Bible reading, unless all of this leads to justice and mercy and generosity over here. Isaiah 58, you guys are fasting and praying, and yet... You wonder why I'm not responding. Here's why. Because though you're fasting, uh, you're not paying your workers. Though you're fasting, uh, you're driving your workers to work on the Sabbath. So I'm telling you, your religious rituals will never be of any value if you're also carrying disobedience that God is asking you to shed. And I will never shed it unless I'm first confronted by it, and I will never be confronted unless I allow my eyes to see the revelation. Remember? Joy is a response to revelation. And so God is speaking, and yet the question over and over and over again is, are we listening? Right? Uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 3, regarding this very, very important principle of revelation, today... When you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. What that means is if you're gathering, singing, worshiping, and carrying something privately, and God is fingering that private thing, and you refuse to deal with it, it will not get ever easier for you to deal with it. It only gets harder. Why? Because when you refuse to deal with what God is clearly revealing to you, your heart is becoming hard. And what that simply means is uh, it, it'll be hard to hear God's voice. So God continues to speak, but you don't hear it quite as clearly. God is saying, shed your bitterness and forgive your brother. And then you don't. And then you hear it again a week later. Shed your bitterness and forgive your brother. And you still don't. And then you hear it again, but not very well. Shed your bitterness, forgive your brother. Shed your bitterness, forgive your brother. Pretty soon what happens is this. Does that make sense? The greatest moments of liberation in my life have come when I've been resisting the shedding of something or resisting taking something on and God has spoken and I obeyed joy. So this is the thing. We want to we learn here to find 
the next step that God has for us. Psalm 119 says this, joyful are the people who follow the instructions of the Lord. It's very simple. Joyful are the people who follow the instructions of the Lord. Some of you don't know that uh, um, my story coming to Bethany was a story of resistance for sure. I didn't want to come be a pastor here. But uh, the, the crux moment, I think, for me was God asked me to go to India. It was, India. it was in India that I learned about Bethany's search for senior pastor and then ultimately later on applied and all these things. But a friend of mine uh, who lives in Canada at a Bible school where I teach had called me and he, he said around December 27th, hey, Richard, uh, God wants you to go to India and teach Hebrews for two weeks. I said, when? He says, well, uh, the flight's uh, January 2nd. I said, I'm not going to India. I have no desire to go to India. He says, well, I don't care what you want. I'm telling you, I've been praying about it. God wants you to go to India. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, whatever. I'm not going. He called me back. He said, listen, well, let's do this. Apply for a visa. And if it comes through, there'll be a sign. And so I did a little bit of research, and I found out that a visa takes two weeks. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll apply. And then we'll see. I'm not going to India. <laughs> and so the next day, I sent all my stuff off to San Francisco from where I was living up in the mountains by fax. And uh, then on uh, December 31, like two days later, I get my visa stamp in the mail. Put this in your passport. And I was like this, no, <laughs> I don't want to go to India. <laughs> and yet, I will just say to you here, I'm not standing here today with you had I not said yes to that one little thing then, right? And so this is my simple encouragement to you this morning. Always be asking the question. Every day in your life, ask this question, God, what's the next thing you have for me? You don't, have to, you don't have to know what's happening five years from now. You don't even have to know what's happening tomorrow or even this afternoon. What you do need to know is what's your next step. When this ends, do you stay and have a conversation with someone or get in your car and go home? That's a, that's a thing. Just be aware of the wind of the Spirit blowing in your life. So that's the first thing here regarding participation. The second thing is this. Obedience always begins with a response to what's there. I mean, it would have been tempting in this case to think, oh, you know what, let's go out and buy some new wine. No, Jesus takes what's already in our lives and transforms it. Very often we think we need more. We need more money. We need more relationships. We need uh, more power. We need more influence, a significant job. We need, we need to change our circumstances. Listen, if God wants to change your circumstances, God can change your circumstances, but you shouldn't be asking the question, God, how will you change my circumstances? You should begin always with what is right here because God came to bring wine into your exact situation now not to necessarily change your situation. He'll change you, but not necessarily change your situation. And so what God uses here is what's already happening. Does that make sense? There's six stone water pots that are there for the kind of custom of purification, which means when you came in the door today, had this been that culture, there would have been a water pot in which you dip your hands and you wash your hands. And so uh, Jesus says to the two God, the servants, hey, Go take those water pots and fill them with water, right? Uh, okay. 
Now, in no universe does that solve this problem, <laughs> but he does it anyway. They do it anyway. And I, did, I just, man, if I could just get on my soapbox here for a moment, so many of us, we're, we're groomed in consumerism, and that creates in our minds a utilitarianism that's really, really unhealthy. In other words, wow, what's going to be the better? I mean, I hear this voice, stick around and have coffee, talk to Roger Jensen. What's the benefit in that? And we do this weird cost-benefit analysis as if we know what's going to happen. We never know what's going to happen as a result of any single conversation, as a result of any single drive, as a result of any single activity. And here's the good news, we don't have to worry about it anyway. We just show up and allow the wind of the Spirit to tell us the next thing to do, and we do it. It doesn't have to be utilitarian. We just, people say to me, hey, Richard, um, how did you end up being an author? I want to I be an author. I want to write books and get published. And I said, I, I, you know, I don't even really know. I just started writing a blog, and then someone read it and wrote me and said, I like your writing. Would you, would you consider writing a book? And I said, well, I guess so, you know. And, like, I just feel like life goes so much better if we take our agenda and light it on fire and throw it away and allow God to lead us wherever God wants to lead us. God will take what is our life and use that for our transformation. And then here's the other thing. This obedience that God calls us to always entails risk. It always does, right? Doesn't matter if it's moving to a new city, quitting your job, starting a new job, getting married, leaving a toxic relationship, having children. When you, when you take a step, you set something in motion over which you have no control. Fine. God asks you to take the step, take the step. Sophie Scholl wrote her things, not knowing that it would mean she dies at 23. She still took the step. Other people take steps, and at least who have an entirely different path, but we take the step knowing there's risk, but though we know there's risk, we always know the end of the story. Do you see? We know that God is moving things toward transformation, toward every disease healed, toward every tear dried from every eye, toward all dividing walls being broken down. We know there's a place at the table for everyone. We know that the best wine is yet to come. We, we, we know all that. So we, t we, we do our thing. We take our step, and we leave the results of the step in God's hands. And so the risk here is this. Fill the water pots with water. So they fill them up to the brim. And then he says, draw some of the water out and take it to the head waiter. Now, this is ridiculous. If you know, he doesn't say to them, uh, bring me some, let me taste it, and make sure that it's good vintage, because I've done this miracle, but it's the first time for me, and so, like, I'm in, like, apprentice zone here, and let me just see if this is going to work. No, he says, draw the water out, and take it to the head waiter. Now, the head waiter has authority over these guys, and so they're coming, and they're like this, uh, hey, no, you're out of wine, no, it's a problem, but uh, we want you to try this. Oh, what is it? Well, uh, you know, we're not sure, but it came from the, the, the water pots where everybody dips their dirty hands when they come in. And so just, would you just take a taste of this and see, you know, 
if this passes muster to solve the like social awkwardness of the poor groom being out of wine. Head waiter, taste it, and that brings us to point number four, act four, transformation. Watch this. They took the head waiter, head waiter verse nine, tasted the water which had become wine. Didn't know where it had come from, but the servants knew. Head waiter calls the bridegroom and says to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Verse 10, in many ways, is the core of the gospel. You have kept the good wine until now. This is the way the universe works, you guys. Uh, You exercise. Your cells break down. Then there's this restorative message that your brain sends to your muscles. And it rebuilds your muscles, but it doesn't just rebuild your muscles, right? It rebuilds your muscles, what? Stronger than they were before. And this is the way the gospel works, too. In the garden, the preposition was this. Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden. And then a dramatic fall from grace and then all the suffering that we see in the world. But the end of the story is not God with us. It's what? Christ in us, the hope of glory. God filling us with nothing less than his divine life in order that the seed that is God's life could in us give birth to fruit, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and of course, in this moment this morning, what? Joy. So we now are invited into this very simple life where we don't make huge goals and go after them, but instead we just rest in allowing the wind of the Spirit to tell us what? The next step that God has for us. And when we take that step, here's what the promise of this story is. Not only new wine, but joy and transformation. Uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, too, going to Talbot Seminary, my wife worked at a hospital, and uh, her supervisor was the most goal-oriented person that any of us had ever met. And so she had uh, a 10-year plan, a 5-year plan, a 1-year plan that translated into monthly goals and objectives, that translated into weekly goals and objectives, that translated into her activities for the day. And she had said to Donna... Within five years, I'm going to own a horse ranch and be married and have two children. And that, that was her goal. And so you fast forward five years, uh, has a horse ranch, has two children, but had lost her husband to infidelity. And that had led to depression and anxiety and really dark thoughts. And she came back to Donna and I, and she said, she said, you know, Richard is working as a carpet cleaner, and you said that uh, you're, you're not taking that job that you were offered at that church, you're li- and yet you have joy. Your life makes no sense to me. And that became for us the opportunity to share with her the gospel. Do you see? 
Because what, what, what matters most in our lives is not circumstances. Most of our circumstances we have no control over. What matters most to us is this. Are we open to God's revelation through text, through creation, through fellowship, through trials? And are we then taking the next step? Because if you take the next step, I promise you, on the basis of what God says in John, the fruit of that will be joy. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you that we have these moments together this morning. I want to thank you that you take whatever is the situation that is normal and you fill it with your life and that results in transformation. And so just before we worship together and receive communion, just take a moment, if you would, in silence and think about this with me in prayer. Lord, would you just reveal to me uh, where I've run out of wine in my life? What's running on empty right now? Would you just speak that to me? I'm, I may be physically weary. Maybe there's a relationship that's strained. Maybe, maybe uh, there's a secret thing that I'm carrying, a hidden addiction or fear or shame. Maybe it's a broken relationship with the family. God, uh, we all have empty, empty wine vessels. Speak to us. And then regarding that thing, God, as we bring it to you today, would you show us what is the next step? And we'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that you do that uh, is so beautiful here, here at Ballard is you have communion available every Sunday. And there's maybe, maybe no more appropriate text in which to receive the cup and bread than today. Because that cup is exactly this. Jesus took a little bit of wine at the Passover and uh, he, he didn't say, uh, this is wine. He said, this is what? This is my blood. Like my, by my word, it's been transformed. So that you can, now when you take that cup, you can know that you know that the wine that is Christ is yours as a gift. Receive it for the forgiveness of sin. And he took the bread and he transformed the bread too. This isn't bread. This is my body. When you're hungry, you eat bread. And it's satisfying. As you take that bread, may Christ be your satisfaction. When you're weak, you eat bread and you're made strong. May Christ be your strength. Strength, satisfaction, forgiveness, joy. Are you running on empty? Maybe this is your next step. Let's worship together.